Welcome to The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. Thanks for finding our show. This is the show that gets you into what you ride, where you ride, and uh, why your spouse may be riding you about riding too much. The Pace Line is a production of thefatcyclist.com, and its founder, Eldon Nelson, is here. Hey there, just call me Fatty. We will call you Fatty for the rest of this podcast, (laughs) and then we'll decide what you're going to be called. The podcast, uh, rather the Pace Line, also a a presentation of RedKitePrayer.com and uh, RKP frontman Patrick Brady is also on a Pace Line mic. Howdy. How are you? Doing well. Cool. We've got a good show today. Um, We're going to talk about something pretty crazy. We call it the surprise segment. Um, The bicycle is actually up for the Nobel Peace Prize. Pretty nuts. Pretty crazy. It might be... One of those little radio games. But there's something serious here, I think, to discuss about the thing we ride, the bicycle, and its place in history and how it has this societal worldwide impact, which I think it does. Also, we open up the route sheet, and it takes us to your neck of the woods, Patrick, uh, Sonoma County, where for a very cool event, a gravel event, multi-surface event called Old Casadero. We're going to turn by turn and kind of check that event out, see what it takes to finish it what kind of equipment you might need, what kind of clothing you might need this year. Mm-hmm. might need some waders or some gaiters or a pretty good rain suit <laughs> based on what's been going up in Sonoma County. Snorkel. Yeah, <laughs> snorkel. Water Scuba. wings. <laughs> and uh, we'll do podium presentations, gentlemen. Um, this is risky business, very subjective stuff. We're going to try and pick writers of the year and place them on the podium and then you know organize them first, second, and third, gold, silver, bronze, type of thing. So that's all on the agenda today for the pace line. Uh, but first, we have a segment we call Take a Poll because it's the pace line where you take polls. And um, this year should mark a pretty significant step um, in the disc brake world, which, Fatty, you know, disc brakes have been on your plate and on your bikes for quite a while since you ride mostly dirt, if not always dirt. Uh, but for roadies, we're kind of staring at these calipers and these rotors and these hoses going, oh, man, am I really going to make that investment? Am I going to jump in? We know that the pros have now said, the pro peloton, that is, and the UCI, all bets are off. Go ahead. Use your disc brakes, any event, wherever you want. We did our little experiment over the summer. We had disc brakes in the Vuelta and some other events, and teams came back with some mixed reviews. And there's some things to work out there for for the pro cyclists. Obviously, they have wheel change issues and rotor size compatibility and all that stuff they're going to have to figure out. But for us, on the front lines, the roadies, where do you think we stand, Patrick? RKP, is this a subject you've covered quite a bit on RKP? Where do you think the consumer stands right now, and how will we move forward in 2016 with road disc? Well... I think the first thing to understand about the issue of uh, disc brakes on road bikes is that this is the future. Uh, the engineers have been working on this. The product managers are placing them on bikes. Uh, this, this is where things are going to go. Just as uh, the big bike companies stopped producing steel frames, uh, there are not going to be uh, 
you know, expensive road bikes produced with rim brakes uh, much in the future. It's all moving to disc. Um, so this is this is simply the future and what's happening at, you know, the, the pro tour level uh, of racing is that we're simply seeing, you know, a reflection of that shift with the teams now moving to disc brakes. Uh, my, my only concern for them is making sure that all the teams make the switch at the same time. Otherwise, what uh, if they don't? What, what are the, what are the, 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 the difference in stopping power between rim brakes and disc brakes means that uh, somebody with disc brakes with a guy with rim brakes behind him will soon be wearing him. <laughs> Fatty, um, you have a road bike probably just by default. Is it disc equipped or, or how do you have it set up? And, and what's your preference here? Well, I'd say I'm about 60-40 mountain to road. So I ride my road bike actually a lot. And in fact, one of my favorite races is a road race. That said, I have not ridden a road bike with disc brakes. But those of us from the mountain bike world already know how this turns out. In, <laughs> <laughs> we, you know, right, right now you have the bikes you have and you have the compatibility that you have and you are going to next time you buy a bike you're going to start thinking about maybe going with disc or maybe not and you're going to make a decision the bike after the next one you buy will have disc brakes period full stop and for me i think it's the next one i buy i'm Mm -hmm. not going to buy a bike until i see another road bike that is sure until i see this thing play out i mean i want to see kind of all the Good options and bad options out there, and then make a move. I mean for everyone in the whole biking universe, though. that For the next bike that a lot of people buy, there's going to be a decision. The bike after that, there isn't even going to be a decision anymore. It's going to be disc. I mean, I think if we're talking from like $3,000 and up, yeah, that's going to be very true. What's going to be, you know, for those who have, of us who really watch what goes on, uh, with the bike companies and you know what's on the floor at the bike shop, uh, the where the break point comes in terms of affordability with discs mm-hmm. is going to be pretty. Uh, I think pretty interesting to watch. You know, I wonder how many more years it is before we see uh, discs on the two thousand dollar bike, the fifteen hundred dollar bike. Six years. You know? Uh, it may be faster than that. <laughs> I mean, it may. It may. You know, I'd say at the outside though, six years. Yeah. A tops and it won't it literally will not be a decision that you have to make anymore yeah and and with the advances they've made in mechanical discs uh you know yeah it could be three years and even stuff at 700 dollars has discs you know that just wouldn't even surprise me now what I, a, yeah well the question though is what about uh the entry level bikes what happens there would somebody only wants to spend you know, five to, to $700 to get into a bicycle, are those folks, uh, for a road bicycle, mm-hmm. are those folks going to be able to get in and have that bike equipped with disc brakes? Uh, you know, there will probably be a certain price point uh, below which you simply won't see discs. I mean, if you look at mountain bikes, the, the $300 entry level, I'm going to the beach, you know, sort of very basic uh, mountain bike, those still have, you know, V brakes or, or cantilevers brakes. on them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there, there will come a break point in, uh, you know, in price below which, you know, they just 
they just haven't made it cheap enough. I'd like you to clarify whether that pun was intentional. <laughs> I backed into it. <laughs> so we're all clear then on the timeline for road disc breaks. I mean, what should our listeners expect? When should they, how long should they wait? Should they wait? If they're in the market for a bike this year, should it be the thing they, they go after, they consider, disc brake equipped bike, or is it another year of calipers? I, you know, if you're buying uh, a high-end road bike right now, uh, the question, okay, if I were buying a high-end road bike right now, the question I would be asking myself would be, what factors would cause me to deliberately not want a, uh, to put a disc brake on there? Um, if I was buying a high-end carbon road bike, yeah, uh, I'd absolutely be going for something with discs, uh, unless there was something preventing me from doing it. My felt AR FRD simply didn't have a disc option, so I went with calipers. Um, you know, so you're not seeing aero road bikes with discs yet. I don't think anybody has has made those two things line up. Um, you know, I've got a, a gravel bike on the way that uh, the tube set is simply too light to do discs, you know. Otherwise, that would have discs on it. So I'm a believer. Having ridden the stuff, it's on my tandem. I'm absolutely a believer. And Eldon, Fatty, you are down all the way. Well, you know, I, I don't buy a road bike as often as I buy a mountain bike. And so my turnover is really slow. I I have a Tarmac SL4, and I have had that. I think I'm three years into it. I can see myself having that bike for another three years. There's just not a, any real reason for me to change. When I By the time I change over, I think the decision will have been 80% made for me, that if I want to get a nice road bike three years from now, it's going to, be, it's going to have discs. If I want to get a bike that I would not want to get, then I would have the option of going disc or caliper. So, yeah, I, I don't think that it's even going to be a question in a few years. What's going to be really interesting to watch is when Shimano introduces the next iteration of Durace. We should be about three years out from the next uh, Durace. I think we're three years into the 9000 series. And so whatever the next one, 9100 is, uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all if they just simply did not offer a caliper brake. And how expensive are these groupos going to get if we go electronic, hydraulic, disc? How much you got? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, but can they do it at a price point as well? They well, will that, do it at a price point. That's what 105 will be. But Durace is always about pushing technology and making the very best stuff you can figure out how to make. Uh, and it should remain that way. You just may have to take out a mortgage. Okay, Fatty and Patrick, time for the uh, surprise segment. Here's some names for you. Uh, Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King Jr., Nelson Mandela, and finally, the Schwinn Varsity. 
Is this an episode of like Celebrity Big Brother or something? No, but it may be uh, maybe something comedic coming out of both Italy and Oslo, Norway. You see, there is a movement. Don't know how legitimate it is, but there is a movement to nominate the bicycle for the Nobel Peace Prize. And that is an amazing, an amazing award for anybody, let alone anything to get. The Peace Prize we're talking about. Now, the bicycle. I'm in. Sounds like a joke, doesn't it? Does it sound a little goofy to you guys, or do you you believe this? When I first ran across this on my Facebook feed, I did not think, oh, that's really funny. I didn't think, you know, it was like the... uh, the Tina Fey was doing Sarah Palin at her endor- endorsement of Trump. It didn't strike me as, oh, somebody's making a joke here. I'm going to go ahead and call it ridiculous. Right. Uh, there are amazing things uh, that people have done on bicycles, but let's not forget that the bike itself is just a tool. It's That's like saying, well, because amazing buildings have been built with a hammer we should nominate the hammer for an architecture award okay here's here's the backstory on this and let's see if this changes either of your opinions on the bicycle for the nobel peace prize it comes and this is why i'm skeptical from a (laughs) from a couple of radio hosts and this is a world i i came from radio commercial radio they're italian i have a little sample of the show in Italy. It's Massimo Siris and Sarah Zambotti, both hosts. I don't know their um, station, but uh, here, here they are on the air promoting the bicycle for the Peace Prize. La bicicletta al prossimo Nobel per la pace. Noi ci crediamo molto, è un'idea, la bici è uno strumento di pace. Molti segnalavano via SMS di aver truccato la propria bici. Stiamo mettendo la cartolina sui raggi che fa, <laughs> fa il rumore della moto. È un, è per un irretuto. <laughs> okay, so put down your cappuccino. That dude totally uh, scared me. Yeah, I know. <laughs> hey, look, here's what they are saying. This is a loose translation. They're saying the bicycle is an instrument of peace. This is in their, their proposal, in their petition. They say the bicycle is an instrument of peace. It's the most democratic means of transportation for all mankind. It does not cause wars. It does not cause pollution. It decreases car accidents. The bicycle removes distances between people, helps children develop, has been used to aid in the liberation movements and resistance of many countries like uh, Gino Bartali, who used his bicycle to transport false documents that rescued 800 Jewish people from the Nazis. So, you know, they, they sound like they're having fun on the radio and radio people, trust me, folks, do some really kooky stupid things but behind this i think behind their their fun and so forth they make some good points about the machine we love that it is this this instrument that does not take on people or offend classes or wipe out populations and in fact the opposite it kind of helps bring people together the question is can can the Peace Prize Committee award the prize to a thing, which they've never done before. They've done it to organizations and people. But can they award it to a thing? Well, I, I think that's up to them. Uh, I'm, I mean, for my part, I'm in. I, I love the idea. When you think about what the bicycle has done in Africa in terms of 
increasing educational opportunities in terms of helping people, you know, escape strife, uh, in terms of, you know, economic improvement for small communities there. Uh, the, the bicycle has done an enormous amount of good in Africa. Um, and so I'm, I, you know, I love the idea as to whether or not we should take them seriously. I mean, they could easily have been talking about the wine industry or uh, politics, and to me, it would have sounded the same. They're Italian. They're 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 gonna sound sort of over the top to me in the first place. Uh, so, I, I don't really place any stock in that. Fatty, if not the bicycle, is there somebody in the the cycling world that may be, you know, uh, somebody who deserves an award like this, like the Peace Prize or or something to that level? Can you think of anybody? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that we already have the answer here. It's in in the language that you use. You know, the bicycle hasn't caused pollution. It hasn't caused wars. You know, it, but it also has been used. You know, it's all it's all it's always being spoken of in terms of being an instrument, and that's fantastic. Who uses the instrument is the person who really ought to be getting the prize. I would say, um, you know, going back to what you just said, Patrick about being used in Africa, and I'm thinking specifically Kenya and Zambia, that FK Day with World Bicycle Relief, you know, make him yep. the recipient of the Peace Prize. Uh, you know, this is a guy who, with World Bicycle Relief, has taken a super simple idea and has effectively brought thousands and thousands of lives up to a higher standard of living. He's done it with accountability. He's done it with innovation. He's done it extremely well. Um you know, and and not just using SRAM as the hammer to get it done. He has worked with, you know, all kinds of bicycle companies and with manufacturing and he's had the assembly done locally. You know, I'm a big fan of WBR. I say abs you know, make something around bicycling, get a peace prize. Doesn't need to be the bicycle that gets the prize itself. I mean, we could just as easily nominate World Bicycle Relief itself. Uh, for the Nobel Peace Prize. Oh, I, I mean, get behind that, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I, were somebody to do that, there's no way you could say, oh, this this is ridiculous. This isn't serious. This is some kind of joke. Uh, that's that's a, a, a real worthy endeavor, I think. There is a petition. The host, the radio host, the Italian host have a petition. But maybe we do something on RKP and, and FatCyclist.com where we redirect this energy sure. to World Bicycle Relief or something. Because it's... It has a little momentum, and it's got some interest, at least in bicycles and, and their place in, in world history and world peace. What the hell? Come to our sites, fatcyclist.com, redkiteprairie.com. Let us know what you think. Who in the bicycle world may be noble for a Nobel Peace Prize? I like it. I like it. Sold. Questa non è una bicicletta. Questo è uno strumento di pace. E allora, bike the Nobel.
On the pace line now, we uh, pass out some route sheets to everyone and uh, open it up, and you'll see it's taking you to Sonoma County this time and a really, really cool event that I've done and Patrick's done, and we hope to get Fatty out there too. It's called Old Casadero. It's really a, a mixed surface event. Um, I can't remember, Patrick, the percentage of gravel to road in this thing, but g- give us a description, first of all, of, of the roads up there for Sonoma County that, that the old Cas goes across and, and kind of what people should expect if, they, if they'd like to get into the event. Sure. So this is a, uh, a, a definitely a multi-strata event, some dirt, some pavement. It starts in West County, Sonoma, Occidental, uh, and opens up, I mean, like 100 meters in with a, a pretty stiff climb. But uh, by and large, what you can say is that the descents are dirt and uh, the climbs will start uh, with pavement and usually go to dirt. Um, and it's, uh, let's see, I believe it's 52 miles, uh, about 5,000 feet of climbing, um, you know, and just crazy beautiful. Uh, that that part of Sonoma County is just gorgeous, uh, though the last time I did it, I was going so hard, I didn't really look around much. Now, we're talking about western Sonoma County, right? How, how does the terrain vary out there? What's, what's the look and the feel and the equipment needs out that way? Um, you've got up and you've got down, and then if you're, <laughs> along, uh, if you're riding along a river, you've got some select flat. And really the only flat points in this event are when you're linking up the climbs and you're running along the Russian River or something like that. Um, as, as to equipment choice, um, it's, I mean, you'll see people with, with everything out there, straight up road bikes, cross bikes, but this is something where you want a really, you know, uh, a solid gravel bike with disc brakes. Uh, my low gear for this will be a 3432. Um, and, uh, I will, I will use that low gear for sure. There are some very steep pitches in there. Agreed. And uh, my low gear also was 3432. I ran a compact there when I rode the event last year. I rode a WTB Nano 40s, mm-hmm. uh, which may sound like a lot of tire, but the thing has a nice solid center for good rolling and in soft, uh, shoulders. I really like that. Um, you got to be prepared for a pretty significant river crossing. What's going on with, I forget the name of the river. Austin Creek. Austin Creek, which can get more than knee deep. <laughs> well, yeah, I did a pre-ride of most of the course with the organizer, Miguel Crawford, uh, a few weeks back. And uh, I'm told that three days before we got there, the creek was at 11 feet, um, which, like, that's not just, passable, is it? Can you, can you even get to swim, or what happens there? Um, yeah, you need water wings. Um, I yeah, I just I couldn't even fathom it. It was knee deep when we crossed it, and while I was grateful for wool socks, my feet were blue for the entire rest of the day. Um, it hurt when I got in the shower. That was some really really cold water. Yeah. Now, Old Kaz is uh, one of these cool events, part of the Grasshopper Adventure Series. Um, it's, uh, Miguel has, um, six events, I think this year, something like that, five or six events this year. Yes. So this is the, this is the kickoff event. Uh, it's very well attended mass start out of Occidental and boy, you better be ready right from the gun. Cause it goes and you make a right turn out of downtown Occidental and go <laughs> straight uphill headed to Willow Creek. 
Okay. Yeah, it's it's like fifteen percent. You you yeah. go out and turn right, and it's it's steep right away, um, and it's I believe a category three climb. Um, so there's uh, there's no warming up for it uh, un- unless you bring a trainer. Uh, you will not roll into this easy. Uh, there's actually another climb that you know, make the right turn off of the road, and yeah, just crazy steep instantly. Um, but you know that's one of the charms of the course. But the big thing is. You know, this is uh, this is Northern California. There's a lot of decomposed granite, um, so there's lots of rock. Uh, guys who decide to run, you know, 28s or 30s are going to stand a, a fair chance of flatting on this. Um, I ran a 38 last year, and I'll be running a 40 this year. Um, I don't like flatting. I like to <laughs> just be able to roll through this stuff. Um, and you know, for me. At the speeds I'm going, it doesn't make that much of a difference. I run high enough pressure that the rolling resistance isn't terrible. Now, Fatty, you've taken a look at the, the course on Strava, I imagine. You haven't ridden it, but yeah. does it compare to anything you've seen before? Maybe folks who have not been to Old Casadero could relate to something that you've seen. I would say probably the closest comparison to something I've ridden would be the Crusher and the Tusher, uh, which is a 50-50 mix of road and dirt, uh, most commonly ridden on either uh hardtail mountain bikes or cross uh bikes i've done it a few times love it uh i think 70 miles ten thousand feet of climbing so uh your baby <laughs> your ride sounds like a baby ride to me yeah I, a crusher <laughs> now a crusher is i mean it really lives up to its name i don't i have not done crusher but based I'm on the it. interview i heard you do i know I, I heard you interview the organizer in one of the fatty casts recently. Burke Swindlehurst. Yeah, really a cool guy and really has his heart in the right place, as is Miguel Crawford up at Grasshopper Adventure Series. I mean, both these guys are examples of, you know, kind of this new wave of, of race slash riding where you don't need a license, you show up, it's a mass start. Mm-hmm. Uh, virtually everyone's invited. Um, there's a choice as to how you want to ride. You can get to the front race if you want. You can just enjoy the ride and enjoy the stops, suffer with your friends along the way. These type of non-licensed, non-sanctioned events, I mean, is this the thing that's going to be the growth in our sport? Who cares whether or not USA Cycling has an eye turned toward this? You know, to me, I mean, one of the great things about this stuff is, you know, old Kaz, this is not something that you would look at a map and go, oh, dude. Let's go do that for a loop. You know, not unless you were already pretty intimately familiar with this area. There are so many private roads in West County, um, and then stuff that you know doesn't appear on anything other than topo maps. Uh, you're not going to just go out and do this on your own. Uh, and so, you know, if you know, seeing this as a race is maybe not the best way to see it. You know, it's kind of the ultimate guided tour of just some of the most fantastic terrain in the United States. I put this in top 10 against anything else anybody's doing anywhere. I think you're hitting on something super important, actually, right there, Patrick, that the indie promoters and the races that they are doing right now, where the race doesn't fit into a simple mold, is giving folks like you and me, you know, people who have no aspirations to be any particular kind of racer, a chance to have an amazing experience. You know, people like Burke Swindlehurst or this race or Mike McCormack's uh, Breck Epic, where they don't care whether it fits into a certain kind of race. They just have a beautiful idea and want people to experience it. 
And, you know, the, the Breck Epic was one of the best weeks of riding I've ever had in my entire life. And it, it had nothing to do with whether it was a kind of race. It had to do with it was an, an amazing place by a guy who loves racing and has a fantastic way to share it with people. Yeah, but yeah. US, USA Cycling is understandably a little panicked about this type of stuff. They've tried to flex their muscle in certain instances. They have, a, I think they have a gravel calendar or some type of gravel event <laughs> right now. So, well, aren't, the, they the, point, aren't they, though, responsible for the development of the sport in oh, the see, United that's, States? Oh, see, that's where we completely lose the plot line. The moment we have to say grassroots, you're missing the point. You know, I used to do a lot of mixed surface rides when I lived in New England. And, uh, you know, here's the amazing part. The, the, the group of friends of mine that I would do these with were mostly triathletes. Um, you know, and we would go out and we would link up all these dirt roads and, you know, use asphalt to, to pull together uh, these crazy little loops. And we did it because it was fun. You know, yeah. we did it because it was great training. Uh, you know, it was a, a, a just something fresh to do, and the moment you have to insert some sort of context in it, it, you know, like grassroots or racing, you're missing the point. The point is to go out and have you know a peak ex- experience. You know, go out and have fun. And it was one so, of the reasons I stopped. So why sport. do they score the events? I mean, Old Kaz has scored. The Crusher and the Tusher has scored. Oh, yeah. The Epic has scored. So why, let's not score the events then. Forget it. Just come out and ride. Well, no, I think that the that the scoring for at least people like me is a big chunk of whether you are having fun. Um, if it is just a ride, then I'm not going to necessarily extend myself and push myself. For me, uh, completely thrashing myself and seeing if I can get to the outer edge of my ability is part of the fun. Um, whether I beat anyone yeah, not so important. I mean, I definitely, you know, if I see someone and I can chase them down, I'm going to do it. Um, but, you know, it's it's really just about if it is scored, if it is timed, then for me, that is one, uh, at least one of the aspects of what makes it a an amazing adventure. So, yeah, keep it a race. The impetus to go deep. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. Well, I love old Casadero. I want to do Crusher and the Tusher. I mean, we need to have a trade. So, I know, I know. There's, there's, there's only so many of these events a body can handle. A rider but, exchange program. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I would encourage folks, I think you would too, Patrick, if, if they can get anywhere near Sonoma County and sign up for any of the Grasshopper Adventure Series. But Old Kaz really is the, it's probably the most well-attended event. It's a great kickoff event. Be ready for Willow Creek. I'm telling you, that thing yeah. comes right after you climb out of Occidental, which Patrick was talking about, that steep climb, road climb. Out of Occidental. Then the next thing you face is a fast, twitchy, loose, shaded descent of Willow Creek. And crazy a lot of guys, fun. a lot of crazy fun, but a lot of guys who got dropped on the climb are trying to make up ground there. So you're going to get passed if you're not the best of, de- of descender. And of course, you're out on the pavement for a bit and then climbing on the other side of River Road, the north side of River Road, which brings a whole other adventure to it. But. <laughs> Really cool, fun event. And I think, I mean, we were talking about disc breaks, how 2016 could be the year of disc breaks. 2016 yeah. also looks like the year of, I think, more of these types of events. When you, when you think these more open, mass start, fun, slash sort of race events. You know, here's the thing. Fun catches on.
A time now for podiums on the pace line, or podium. It's a podium, not podiums, I suppose. Podia. Podia. You put people <laughs> on the podium. If you get a podium, yeah, it's singular, right? So time now for the podium. What we're going to do with the podium uh, this time on the pace line is really get subjective and probably open ourselves up to just a little bit of criticism by attempting, trying to pick writers of the year for 2015. These are personal opinions. We have no scientific approach. There was no polling involved. I did. This is just one, two, three. Patrick, <laughs> Fatty, Michael, trying to come up with a name each that says 2015 Writer of the Year. Fatty, what do you got? Who is your 2015 Writer of the Year? Well, let me apologize right at the beginning because there is no way you guys are going to be able to come close to what I got here. Madeline Bemis, have you ever heard of her? Yes. No. <laughs> All right. Well, one of you have, one of you have, haven't. She is a 17-year-old girl in Northern California. She is a junior. She has been writing uh, for a couple of years uh, with a NICA program. She is a current 12-hour champ in the Open Division, and she is on her way to race in the 24-hour World Championship Solo Division, uh, making an attempt at 17 years old to be the U23 Division Champion. Okay, so how many 24s has she done before? This will actually be her first 24-hour race. <laughs> ever. Um, both feet then. Well, absolutely, yes. I, I shouldn't say it's going to be her first 24-hour race at all. She has raced as a part of a high school team that also had Rebecca Rush on it in the 24 Hours of Old Pueblo as a four-person team. Uh, they Not won. The yeah, how, did, yeah. how does Rebecca get on a high school team? Rebecca actually sponsored uh, this where there was a contest where uh, high school girls were allowed to send in their videos to be on her team. And then she raced this in the open division. I believe they won or they took third, this group of three high school girls and Rebecca Rush. Um, and the high schoolers raced in the open division with Rebecca. I yes, wow. yes. And um, it this experience when uh, Madeline was a freshman in high school just completely took over her mind and she's been doing endurance events as well as the high school events ever since and has been working to raise $6,000 so she, her father, and her coach can go to New Zealand to race at, in as a soloist in this 24-hour world championship. It's incredible. I love this kind of uh, drive and enthusiasm. I had her on the Fatty Cast recently, and I was so taken with her that I took her her cause as my own. And now she will have the Fat Cyclist logo on her jersey because we got her to the six thousand uh, dollar point. Nice. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And has she ever been out of the hemisphere? I mean, that's you know talking about going away to, to ride. <laughs> You know, I don't know uh, what what her experience in traveling has been, but, you know, traveling, uh, you know, all the way to New Zealand to do her first 24-hour solo race as a 17-year-old kid, I just <laughs> yeah. love the, I, I love the audaciousness of it. And, and she's chock full of amazing. Yeah, 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 amazing kid. 
a strong centered kid and I mean, an astonishingly good rider. I mean, that part sort of goes without saying, I mean, and and it's just incredible to me that uh, so early in her development as a cyclist, she'd be doing uh, events that are about an hour long and then stuff that's eight hours or more. Yeah. She's a 12 hour champion, a 12 hour solo champion. So she's, uh, done some good long races but this will be you know twice that long however she does have as a mentor rebecca rush uh having phone calls with her and getting advice and equipment guidance from her so it's not like she doesn't have some experienced people backing her up but this is her own right there's nobody behind her putting pressure on her this is her own thought process this is her motivation this is her yeah that's this is cool. a 17-year-old kid saying, I'm going to go to New Zealand and race my bike for 24 hours solo. And she's done a lot of research. She it knows what she's doing. It is, uh, it, it is pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. So this was mostly just chance that she kind of saw this sport and saw this activity? It, or what I'm getting to sure. is, there, do we need to foster more of this? Do we need to make sure this happens more often? Or do we just leave it to chance? My opinion, this is something that the cycling community needs to get behind in a huge way. These are amazing kids looking for ways to do amazing things. takes a lot of resources, you know, money, bikes, coaching, nutrition, all of that. We want to make these kids love cycling and be able to hit incredible goals. We got to get behind them. Agreed. I mean, this shouldn't just be the domain of people with extraordinary drive. You know, not everyone's going to have the level of ambition that she does. Right. And so to, to show people there's a path for this sort of thing, um, to use her as an em- exemplar for the future, I'm, yeah, I fully support that. Cool. Told well, you you fact, guys didn't I, have a chance. Yeah, I know. And I think you've done a good <laughs> job of, of putting up a nice shield. No one's going to come at you for that one. I think you've got the 17-year-old youngster. That's a, good, that's a very good choice, and it's going to be hard to, to knock that one off or even – or even critique it. She's she's really an excellent story, really a good story. But Patrick, mm-hmm. go ahead. Writer of uh, 2015 for you. Taylor Finney. Uh, and I, I chose him for his comeback from his near career-ending crash in which he broke his leg. Uh, I, was, I was really upset when I learned about the crash. Uh, because I think he and the other uh, crop of new Americans, uh, T.J. Van Garderen, Pete Stetna, Andrew Talansky, these guys, I think they are our way out of the morass of what was Generation EPO. Uh, everything we know about them says that not just not only are they riding clean, but they seem to have a different perspective on the sport, one that suggests they really have a moral compass about this. And the fact that we could have lost uh, one of the brightest lights of this group, you know, just as he was really getting going, uh, was was really devastating. Not just for uh, you know uh, him and his family, but a lot of cycling fans. And to see him not just come back from the crash and rejoin the pro peloton, but then go on to win stages of the biggest races here uh, here in the U.S. Um, Boy, it was it was absolutely remarkable. I got choked up uh, seeing one of his performances. So uh, I'm glad to see him back, and 
I think he deserves a big nod for what he did. I love his art. I think what he's done off the bike is remarkable, very cool, shows this level of maturity that is pretty darn amazing. Have you seen his art? It's cool. Yes. I think, I think the fact that he found art in the course of his convalescence and recovery uh, is something that is going to uh, really aid him as uh, a healthy adult through the whole of his life. Who knows? This is the sort of thing that could give him an outlet uh, for recovery, um, you know, just from the rigors of racing that could help extend his career. Um, but certainly it's going to enrich the whole of his life. And for that, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy for him. How do you suppose his father's illness has affected him and the direction he has taken? It's hard to calculate. I mean, that's, that's the stuff of an interview. I just couldn't even speak to that on, uh, on my own. But he has, I mean, considering his bloodlines, his DNA with Connie and Davis, pretty amazing character and how he, he has this great perspective. He doesn't look to be anxious or worried about anything, despite the injury and despite all that kind of goes on around him. He's got this calmness about him. That is oh, he's, he's so cool that there are ice cubes with posters <laughs> up of him in his room. You know, I mean, yeah, he's, he's always been remarkably chill. Um, he's, you know, he's certainly at ease in his own skin. Um, and he's just, he's a decent guy. I've spent a little bit of time around him. Uh, he's somebody whose, whose company I enjoyed immensely. Excellent. I think that's an excellent choice. Taylor Finney, 2015 writer of the year. So, uh, that leaves me. Hmm. Uh, mine is going to be, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go to an event and a person who... Uh, for a couple of years, I thought somebody would do what he he finally did, and it did happen. In the, yes, it happened in the high mountains of Colorado at a little event they call the Leadville Trail 100. This year's winner was Alvin Lakata, the Albinator, and he cracked the six-hour mark over not 100, but actually 103 miles of the Leadville Trail 100, and. He actually had gotten close before. He'd done a, in 2013 a 6.06. And then uh, 2014, he followed that up with a flat tire and some issues. But it, it started becoming pretty clear by him that, that the six-hour mark was going to get broken there. Somebody was going to rail it, and he did with a 5.58.35. Um, actually, just nipping his teammate, too, Christian Heineck, who came in just seconds behind him. Uh, also broke the six-hour mark, but officially, Albin was the first to break the six-hour mark at the Leadville Trail 100. And for that, I want to put him on the podium, 2015 Rider of the Year. So you're it, saying this guy did 18 miles an hour at altitude on a mountain bike for six hours? Well, not quite 18. I think it's, what, closer to 17, right, Patty? right around there i think yeah. it's about 17 miles an hour up there around there but for a little bit more perspective here in the original racing of this of the leadville trail 100 the winner was someone you all know john stamstead and he did it in almost exactly two hours more 752 was the first winning time that's Last year's winning time. Oh, it is incredible. There's not, you know, this does not take away from Stamstad's race, but mm -hmm. five hours, 58 minutes, two hours faster. <sighs> that is extraordinary. Um, 
you know, and to a degree that speaks to equipment and knowledge and people uh, are racing it like a road race as opposed to something that's an individual event now. But just incredible. Just incredible. And then, of course, we had a woman, Annika Longvid, breaking seven hours. And she was the first woman to break seven hours also in 2015. Got maybe a bit overshadowed by by Albin's efforts. And the men's race really was tight. I think there were five guys that came in within five minutes of each other, which is pretty incredible up there. Um, but again, the Albinator just, just stormed him. Albin actually, he's been coming back too. He tore his Achilles in 2014. And uh, so he had his own little, not a, not a Taylor Finney comeback, but had his own little comeback from a serious injury um, to really do what he wanted to do there. And I, I think we all knew that that was forefront in his mind to break six hours there at, at Leadville and become the first guy to do that. But I mean, he's blown away. Just, I mean, other people thought, oh, the Lance record will never be broken. And Levi came along and Levi did 618 or something like that. That'll, that'll stand forever. But they've been eroding. It's been eroding for a while now. And, and Lakata just, I mean, he, he ripped it. And what do you remember about that day, Fatty? I mean, uh, the condi- do you think the conditions were ripe that day for, for the record? Or was it just a superhuman uh, effort? Let's not say or. Let's say and. It, the conditions were good last year. I had my best time by six minutes. And it wasn't because I was in the best shape of my life. It was because... There, the winds were favorable. The trail was in good shape. It was a. Some people remember it as a hot day, but those are the people who were out there for longer than six hours. Mm-hmm. You know, it was noon when he finished. You mm-hmm. think about that. Well, it was twelve thirty, right? So half an hour past noon. It was not hot for him when he finished, right? Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was hot for the people who finished at three p.m. at six p.m. Um, you know, to in, to a degree. Um, trail was in great shape. That said, you know, he, he knocked, um, I believe what, six minutes off the pre the previous record, which was his record mm-hmm. by the way. Yep. So yep. his uh, was six Oh four in 2013. Mm-hmm. And then he did five fifty eight thirty five. So yeah, yeah. About, wow. taking, I, uh, taking six minutes off of what was his record. Um, that's extraordinary. And you can only chalk up portion of that up to conditions on the trail so what's the next uh, benchmark there is there is there a faster number out there oh sure there's always a faster faster number out there someone someone's going to uh you know get 557 someone's going to get 555 um will anyone ever get lower than 550 uh i think that's where the hard line is going to have to be drawn if we ever see that um Time to start doing some drug testing at the Leadville 100. Yeah. Wow. Well, the only thing, I mean, I never saw Albin really uh, get paced much at, at any of his events. So I suppose if there was some pacing going on between Twin Lakes and the bottom of the power line both ways, like you had a pacer, somebody was with mm-hmm. you, really busting the wind for you, you could probably, he could probably shape what is probably five, seven minutes in there somewhere that he could cut. Just on the flats. Well, but that's only that's only fifteen min or fifteen miles shaving seven minutes. That's thirty seconds per mile. That's that would be something. That would really be something. Yeah, he'd need a train, not just a pacer. Yeah, absolutely. And I, just as as an aside, I understand that you got into Leadville this year. So congratulations right. and good luck. Well, it is my 
fourth time in, my, the only time I've gotten in via lottery. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually lucky this year as opposed to just being crazy. <laughs> um, yay? Yay is right. This will be my 19th try. 19th. So, actually, um, it'll be my 20th try. Um, hopefully my 19th finish. I, I DNF'd in 2009. And when you do finish 20 times there, what, what's the award? Do they, they treat you with a... They give you a belt buckle uh, the size of a TV dinner tray. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> it is really something to behold. All right, well, I want to thank everyone for joining the Pace Line. Uh, show number one, not bad, guys. Pretty good job here. Yeah. Fatty, fatcyclist.com. Yep. Thanks for uh, helping us put on the show. You're one of the presenters of this show, and your blog and website and everything about you helps back this show. So thanks for being here. Anything going on with you? These days? Hey, you know, um, in addition to this podcast, I'm also doing the Fatty Cast, which is uh, long form interviews with people who love bicycles. Uh, check it out. Awesome. And uh, the Red Kite Prayer, uh, the, or is it just Red Kite Prayer, right? I don't want to put an article before that, do I? You know, as long as people visit, I'm good with that. I think, though, the URL is redkiteprayer.com. And yes. Red Kite, without Red Kite Prayer, this podcast, the pace line wouldn't be here. Patrick, thanks for a. Uh, being here, any final words from you? Uh, just stop on by. RKP, redkiteprayer.com. You'll find uh, Patrick's uh, entries there. Some good stuff, as always. A uh, few from me, as well. I have a couple of uh, reviews up. So Plenty of other please. contributors. Yeah, plenty of other stuff to read at both uh, thefatcyclist.com and redkiteprayer.com. Uh, this has been The Pace Line, folks. Thanks for being here, and we'll see you next time.